Today's podcast was recorded yesterday. If you want to listen to my podcasts commercial-free the day that I record them, go to shiftradio.com premium. It only costs $5 a month. Today's podcast is sponsored by Shopify. Shopify is a platform designed for anyone to sell anywhere, giving small entrepreneurs the resources once reserved for just big business. Sign up for a free trial at shopify.com gold. Today's podcast is also sponsored by Ladder. Ladder makes it fast and easy to get affordable term life insurance without leaving home. Go to ladderlife.com slash gold today to see if you're instantly approved. I'm going to go out on a limb here and predict that we've already seen the Fed pivot. Now, it wasn't a pivot in the sense that the Fed has gone from hiking interest rates to cutting interest rates. It hasn't gone from quantitative tightening to quantitative easing, but it is a pivot in rhetoric. And what it amounts to is an easing of monetary conditions because what the Fed is going to be doing, I think, going forward is starting to walk back just how aggressive its rate hiking campaign is going to be. Instead of talking about how critical it is to fight inflation, I think the Fed is going to be talking about the progress that they've already made in their inflation fight. And therefore, since they've made progress, maybe not completely declaring victory, but indicating that they're seeing the light at the end of the tunnel, that maybe they don't have to raise interest rates as high as they thought, or maybe leave them as high for as long as they thought. And so the path back down to 2% inflation may not require as aggressive a rate hiking campaign as they may have previously thought before they started to see the evidence of their success. And the reason I think this is happening and the reason I think it has happened is because Thursday of last week, the bond market really looked like it was about to collapse. In fact, when I recorded my last podcast on a Wednesday, I specifically focused on the bond market and the title of the podcast had to do with the bond market and how rapidly it appeared that it was imploding and how quickly interest rates were rising. In fact, at the beginning of last week, the yield on the 30-year Treasury finally got above 4%. And in fact, on Thursday morning, it almost got to 4.4%. That was a huge move intra-week. Remember, I said that I thought the move from 4% to 5% would be even quicker than the move from 3% to 4%, and that was on pace to come true. And in fact, the yield on a 30-year Treasury actually got higher than that on Monday morning. It got up to 4.425, although the yield on a 10-year didn't quite make a new high. And one of the things that was very problematic in the bond market carnage that was going on last week was that the yield curve had moved to positive between the 10-year and the 30-year, and that's how it should be. And I had been predicting that that would happen because I thought that the markets would start to price in the extra inflation risk that would exist by going 20 years longer on the bond curve. You see, more people were focused on a recession and the Fed cutting rates, 
and they weren't paying attention to what that meant for the long-term inflation rate. Well, I think bond investors were starting to figure this out, and that's why they were selling off the 30-year bond even more aggressively than they were selling off the 10-year bond. And I think when the Federal Reserve was looking at what was happening in the bond market, and of course, the stock market was under a lot of pressure too later last week because of the weakness in the bond market, because the Achilles heel of this bubble economy is interest rates, because we've got so much debt. And if interest rates rise high enough, the whole thing is going to collapse. I kept tweeting about that. As a matter of fact, I think it was on Thursday, just pointing out just how dependent the United States is on artificially low interest rates. In fact, on Friday morning, I tweeted out the following. The 10-year U.S. Treasury yield hit 4.33%, its highest since November of 2007, when the national debt was still under $9 trillion. Today, it's over $31.2 trillion. At 4.33%, annual interest payments on the national debt would exceed $1.35 trillion. That's more than the U.S. government spent on national defense or Social Security. Think about it. At that rate of interest, interest on the national debt would be the most expensive government program. Because right now, the most expensive one is Social Security. I think it's about $1.2, a year. National defense is about a trillion a year. But interest on the national debt would be $1.35 trillion. Now, it wouldn't get there immediately because a lot of the debt is still locked in at lower interest rates. But it's not locked in for an extended period of time. So as all that short-term debt matures and has to be refinanced at current market rates, the overall cost of the national debt continues to surge, and ultimately we would have that $1.35 trillion price tag in a few years. But of course, in a few years, the debt itself will be much larger than it is today. So it's not even going to take that long for net interest payments to be that much money when you keep compounding the size of the debt. And of course, As rising interest rates weaken the economy, that alone increases the debt. The weaker the economy is, the bigger the deficits are, the faster the national debt is rising, and now all of that debt has to be financed at the higher interest rates. Then I tweeted out this. I said, when the national debt hits $35 trillion next year, which I think it will, at a 6% rate of interest, annual interest payments on the national debt would exceed the national defense budget, welfare, and education spending combined. Can you imagine spending more on interest on the national debt than defense, welfare, and education combined? Now, if interest rates went to 8%, which they would have to do just to equal the current rate of inflation, then interest on the national debt would exceed what we spend annually on Social Security, national defense, and education combined. You see the problem here? Debt is spiraling out of control, and it's going to crowd out all the other government spending. In fact, the last tweet I made on this subject was the following. At the rate the national debt and interest rates are rising, before the decade ends, interest on the national debt will exceed 100% of federal tax revenue. That would mean the entire federal government would then consist of just the Treasury Department, which would collect taxes and pay interest on the debt. Basically, the U.S. government would be a conduit from taxpayers 
to bondholders. Now, obviously, this can't happen. At some point, something has to give. And I think that something already gave. I think it gave on Friday morning. And that's why I think the Fed folded with this soft pivot. And again, the reason I'm saying it's a soft pivot and not a hard pivot is because the Fed is still on the trajectory of hiking rates. I just think it shifted into a lower gear. And so that in and of itself constitutes an easing. Even if the Fed is still tightening, if it's tightening less aggressively than the markets had fought, then it's an easing. It's a forward guidance that is easing conditions a little bit and telling the markets, hey, you're too tight. You're pricing in too many rate hikes because we're probably not going to have to hike as many times as you think. The terminal rate is not going to be as high as you think because we're already making good progress. Now, that is all BS. They're not making good progress, but they have to say that because there's no real alternative. Now, the way this pivot was telegraphed to the markets was through a Wall Street Journal reporter who basically said he had it on good sources that the Fed is going to be indicating that future rate hikes will be somewhat smaller than what they had previously indicated. So maybe we'll have one more 75 basis point rate hike, but then going forward, there'll be 50 or 25 or who knows, maybe the next rate hike won't even be 75 basis points. It might be 50 basis points, especially if we keep getting economic data, like the economic data that we've already got this week. Just to give you some examples of what the Fed is dealing with, yesterday we got the October PMI, and the composite index came out at just 47.3. That's versus 49.5 from the prior month. Anything below 50 is contraction. So that indicates that we're in a recession. The manufacturing numbers dropped from 52 in the prior month down to 49.9. So manufacturing in recession territory, the expectation was for 51.2. Now the service sector, which is an even larger part of the dysfunctional U.S. economy, that was supposed to hold steady in contraction territory. It was at 49.3 in the prior month, and October was supposed to come out identical to that number, but instead we dropped all the way down to 46.6. That is deep in contraction territory. It surprised even the most pessimistic of bears because the range of forecasts for the service sector PMI was from a low of 47.5 to a high of 49.7, and we came in below the low end of that range. So this is very difficult for the Fed because they are hiking interest rates into a weakening economy. Can we talk about notifications for a second? Who actually leaves those sounds on anymore? Well, except for that sound, that's the sound of another sale on Shopify, the all-in-one e-commerce platform to start, run, and grow your business. With Shopify, you'll create an online store in your vibe, discover new customers, and grow the following that keeps them coming back. Shopify makes it simple to sell to anyone from anywhere. Whether your thing is vintage teas or recipes for ghee, start selling with Shopify and join the platform simplifying commerce for millions of your favorite businesses worldwide. Shopify has all the sales channels sorted so your business keeps on growing. 
from an in-person POS system to an all-in-one e-commerce platform, even across social media platforms like TikTok, Facebook, and Instagram. And thanks to 24-7 support and free libraries full of educational content, Shopify's got you every step of the way. It's how every minute new sellers around the world make their first sale with Shopify, and you will too. When you're ready to launch your thing into the spotlight, do it with Shopify, the commerce platform backing millions of businesses down the street and around the globe. These are the possibilities, and they're powered by Shopify. The best part is how Shopify makes selling so simple, allowing you to put your ideas out there. Whether your thing is making ebooks or earrings, Shopify makes success possible. Making your idea real opens endless possibilities. And I love how Shopify makes it easy for anyone to successfully run a small business. It's never been easier to start and grow a business thanks to Shopify. Go on, try Shopify for free and start selling anywhere. Sign up for a free trial at shopify.com slash gold. Go to shopify.com slash gold. Start selling online today at shopify.com slash gold. Today's episode is sponsored by NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. NerdWallet's financial journalists use fact-based reporting for some much-needed clarity in the finance world, helping you make smarter decisions with your money. Get smarter about things like saving on travel, because spending less on airfare means more money for an extra night and maybe a fancier dinner, too. Boosting your credit score, since good credit is like a real-life cheat code. And saving for an emergency fund, because life is like a good movie. It loves a good plot twist. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast on your favorite podcast app. Future you will thank you. Another indication today of the weakness of the economy was the consumer confidence numbers for October, which unexpectedly dropped way more than expected. The prior month was at 108, and that was actually revised down a tad to 107.8. But the consensus for October was 106, and we came out at 102.5 way below estimates. And again, the consensus range went from a low of 104.5 to a high of 110. And again, we came out beneath the low end of expectations. So why are consumers becoming less confident? Because the economy is getting weaker as consumer prices are moving up. So we get stronger inflation, weaker economy. This is bad news In fact, it's not bad news in and of itself. A lot of people think that confidence is important because consumers need confidence to go out and borrow and spend. I think consumers will borrow and spend even if they lack confidence because the one thing they'll do is borrow and spend. That's kind of the American way. Unfortunately, the reason Americans will stop borrowing and spending is because they're broke and they don't have any more credit and they just can't afford to keep doing it. And I think that's really what's going on. So it's not that consumer confidence is going to lead to less spending. I think that less spending has led to less confidence because the people can't go out and buy the things they need or the things they want because they can't afford it anymore. And in fact, another indication of how bad things are right now is how well Republicans are now polling in the Senate races. In fact, the Republicans are now favored to win the U.S. Senate. Now, this is another prediction I made. I think just a few weeks ago on my podcast, I was looking at the predictit.com website. And if you bet Republican, it was about 45 cents. If you bet Democrat, it was 55 cents, meaning that the Democrats were favored to win. And so you would have won more money if you bet on the Republicans to take control of the Senate than the Democrats. Well, as I'm looking on that website right now, to buy the Republicans to take control of Congress, it's 66 cents. 
and the Democrats are all the way down to 38 cents. So the Republicans are now a bigger favorite to win the Senate than the Democrats used to be a favorite to win it. So it's been a complete reversal, and the Republican lead in the House of Representatives has increased enormously. If you want to bet that the Republicans win the House of Representatives, you have to pay 89 cents, which means all you can win is 11 cents. But on the other hand, if you want to bet the Democrats, it only costs 12 cents. So you make not quite 10 times your money if the Democrats win. So they are a complete long shot to win the House, and they're an underdog to maintain control of the Senate. So it looks like the Republicans are going to flip both the House and the Senate. And the reason that I made that forecast a few weeks ago when the Republicans were still behind in the U.S. Senate is I was confident that the economic data was going to get worse as we got closer and closer to the election. And ultimately, this is going to be a pocketbook election. Like former President Bill Clinton said, it's the economy stupid. You can even narrow it down in the 2022 midterms. It's inflation stupid. And when the election is coming down to inflation, well, the incumbent party is going to lose because the voters are going to blame who's ever in charge for the inflation. Well, the Democrats are in charge of everything. They've got the White House. They've got both houses of Congress. So how could they blame the Republicans? They won't. The Republicans have got a great issue to run on, and that's inflation. I think the secondary issue is crime. Crime is going up probably as fast as consumer prices. And that's also a big problem that voters are going to blame on Democrats. In fact, Republicans typically own the crime issue. And the bigger the threat that crime represents, the more likely voters will look for a law and order type party. And clearly, that's the Republican Party. So when you got high inflation and high crime, that spells high turnout for Republicans and moderates or independents are going to be more likely to vote Republican during these circumstances. And so we're likely to see the Republicans control both houses of Congress. Now, what does that mean? Other than the fact that it's indicating that the public is upset and they want to throw the bums out and replace them with potentially a different set of bums from another political party, while I'm happy that the Republicans are going to take control of Congress, I'm not optimistic that it's going to do anything because what are these Republicans going to do? Yes, when there is a Democrat in the White House, Republicans do have a better track record of pushing back against spending. When you have a Republican, like when we had Donald Trump, well, the Republicans in the House and the Senate were rubber stamping increased spending under Trump. They have a tendency to push back against spending in another party. But if the economy continues to weaken, as I believe it will, as the recession gets deeper, and now the Republicans are also eyeing the White House in 2024, they are not going to want to get in the way of government programs that are designed to stimulate a weak economy. And so they're likely to compromise with Biden and we'll get the worst of both worlds. We'll get increased government spending, but we'll also get tax cuts. So we're going to have expansionary fiscal policy on two fronts. The government's going to spend more and they're going to collect less in taxes because the Republicans won't support more government spending unless they get tax cuts. 
And Biden's going to say, well, I'm not going to support tax cuts for the rich unless we get more government spending for the poor or the middle class or whoever. And so we're going to get this bipartisanship, which is going to be very dangerous for the economy and for inflation. And the trends that are in motion now are going to accelerate after the midterms when you have this bipartisan mentality to try to help the economy. Because Politicians cannot resist the urge to help because they don't want to tell voters that they're doing nothing, even if doing nothing is the right thing to do, and just trusting that the free market is better than central planning. But that's not what somebody who's unemployed wants to hear. Don't worry, the free market's going to take care of you. That unemployed person wants help. He wants to vote for somebody that's going to give him a job. If somebody is struggling with high prices, he wants to vote for somebody that promises to lessen that burden. You can't beat somebody who's promising something if you're promising nothing. Just promising freedom is not the same thing as promising free stuff. That's why democracy doesn't work. It has a horrible track record. The worst candidate typically wins, and the worst candidate is the one who promises the most, but the best candidate would be the one who promised the least, because to have a vibrant economy, the secret is to have government as small as possible. Well, small government is not in a position to dole out favors. It's not able to reward those who vote for them with free stuff. It rewards them with freedom. And a lot of people just don't understand the benefits that come with freedom and the cost of getting something for free. Getting back to some of the weak economic data that came out today, and again, that helped to fuel the rally in the stock market and the rally in foreign currencies, for that matter, and the rally in bonds was the weaker than expected Richmond Fed Manufacturing Index, which in the prior month was at zero and was expected to come out at a minus three, and it came out at minus 10. And again, if you look at the range of estimates, it went from a low of minus five to a high of zero, and we came out double the low end of the range. But I think the most important data point that came out today that really helped the markets and drive home the idea that the Fed has already pivoted and that the rate hikes are not going to be on the same trajectory as people once thought was the housing data from Case Shiller. The home price index was down by 1.3% on the month. That's the 20 city adjusted month over month number. And the prior month, which was originally reported as down 0.4, was revised to down 0.7. And the consensus for August was down 0.8. And again, we blew out the low end of the range. It was from minus 0.8 to up 0.2. And we were minus 1.3. And the unadjusted number was even worse. That one was down 1.6%, double the 0.8% decline from the prior month. And the year-over-year numbers went from a year-over-year increase of 16.1% in home prices last month to now just a 13.1% year-over-year increase. That is well below the 14.1% that was expected and, again, below the lowest estimate, which went from 13.7% increase to 17%. So we're seeing a rapid deceleration in home prices, not only does that indicate a slowing economy, but that is music to the ears of investors who are looking for some indication that the Fed is making progress on inflation. And in fact, you got Jeremy Siegel out there who's 
all over the place in the news now claiming that the inflation battle has already been won and that the Fed is now way ahead of the curve and it doesn't need to keep tightening as aggressively because it's already won. Now, Jeremy Siegel was correct, and I gave him props at the time for saying that the Fed was behind the curve, for saying that inflation was not transitory and the Fed was making a mistake. And Jeremy Siegel was right then. He's wrong now. The Fed is still behind the curve. The Fed hasn't won the inflation battle. It's not even close to winning that battle. But what guys like Jeremy Siegel and other people are doing, they're pointing to home prices and they're saying, look, real estate prices are falling. That's a sign that inflation is over. And he points to the fact that a couple of years ago, when real estate prices were rising, the Fed was ignoring that and they were just focusing on the shelter component of the CPI, which was dominated by owner's equivalent rent and that owner's equivalent rent was barely rising. And so he said, hey, the Fed should ignore owner's equivalent rent and look at home prices. Well, now he's saying the same thing. He's saying the Fed needs to ignore owner's equivalent rent that is rising and instead focus on home prices that are falling. So at least he's consistent in that respect. But the reason I think he's wrong about just looking at home prices is because home prices are not the real determinant of the cost of shelter. What you pay to buy a home is like the admission ticket to home ownership. But what's important is not what it costs you to get into your house, but how much it costs you to stay in your house. The cost of home ownership continues to go up at an accelerating rate. And that is going to factor into owner's equivalent rent. And in fact, for a long time, I was talking about the lag between owner's equivalent rent and home prices and actual costs related to owning a home, because a lot of those costs get factored in to what rent would be, but not just rent, but what you pay to own a home. And the costs that I am referring to are number one, the mortgage. So even if the price of the house that you're buying comes down. If the interest rate on the money you have to borrow to buy that house goes way up, it could still cost you more. Monthly payments on a $400,000 mortgage could be bigger than monthly payments on a $450,000 mortgage. It all depends on how much higher the interest rate is. And what Americans are really buying when they buy a home is the monthly payment. The actual price they pay for the home is irrelevant because most people are never going to pay off their mortgage. All they care about is, can I swing the monthly payments? So that's what they look at. They say, how much will the monthly payments be if I buy this house? So the actual price is kind of irrelevant. It's the mortgage payments. And what's happening now is as prices are dropping, mortgage payments are rising. And in fact, it's rising interest rates that are suppressing home prices because that's the only way somebody can afford to buy when the interest rates are higher is if the purchase price is lower. But then you've got to go beyond the mortgage and look at the other costs like insurance. Insurance rates are skyrocketing. I went over that. My own insurance rate went up by 40%. What is driving insurance rates up? It's the cost to repair a home if something goes wrong. The material costs, the labor costs, everything costs a lot more money. And so it costs the insurance companies more money to pay claims. Plus the insurance companies are taking hits to their investment portfolios, to their bond portfolios. They've got claims coming in from hurricanes. So they have got to recover those costs. They've got to get it from their policyholders. So insurance rates are going up. Property taxes, 
Governments are in trouble. They need more money. Their tax revenues are down. Their interest costs are up. What are they doing? They raise taxes. Plus, when property prices go up in many states, your property tax automatically goes up because it's tied to the appraised value of your home. So even if they don't raise your taxes, the fact that your house is going up in value automatically raises your taxes. So property taxes are going up. Now, your maintenance costs, well, they're obviously going up. Anything that goes wrong is going to cost you a lot more money to fix it. And then you've got your utility bills. When you own a home, you got to heat it in the winter. you got to cool it in the summer. That costs a lot more money than it used to cost. And especially if someone is buying a home and they're coming from a smaller apartment, when you have more square footage to cool and heat, it ends up costing a lot more money. So if all these other costs are going up, then the only thing that can give is the price of the home. But to then conclude that because the price of a house is dropping, that the government has won the battle of inflation because shelter costs are going down. Shelter costs are not going down. They're going up. It's just the asset price that's going down. Now, the same thing is going to happen with the stock market. When we start to see lower stock prices, we've already have seen lower stock prices. That doesn't mean there's less inflation. Yes, the air is coming out of the stock market bubble. The inflation is moving from asset prices to consumer prices. And the same thing is going to happen with real estate. Inflation is going to move out of real estate prices to other prices. But this is not a sign of relief. I've been in the investment business my entire life. And one of the things that's always bothered me is when people buy whole life insurance policies when they should be buying term because they think they're making a good investment. Buying life insurance is not about making an investment. It's about protecting the people you love and making sure they're taken care of if you're not around to do it. And the best way to do that is with a term life insurance policy because term life allows you to buy the biggest death benefit for the smallest monthly premium. And that frees up more money for you to make much better investments than those that would be otherwise available inside a whole life policy. The thing is, your family's probably not going to need your life insurance policy. And that's a good thing. So in the event that they do need it, they're far better off with a term policy. But in the more likely event that your family doesn't need your life insurance policy, you're better off too by getting better returns on the money that you don't waste by paying unnecessarily high whole life premiums just to build up cash value that'll likely be wiped out by inflation. Ladder is 100% digital when you apply for up to $3 million in coverage or less. There's no doctors, no needles, and no paperwork. To apply, you just need a phone or a laptop and a few spare minutes. Ladder's smart algorithms work in real time, so you'll find out instantly if you've been approved. There are no hidden fees, and you can cancel any time. And if you change your mind in the first 30 days, you'll get a full refund. Ladder policies are issued by insurers with long-proven histories of paying claims. And since life insurance costs more as you get older, now's the best time to cross it off your list. Go to ladderlife.com slash gold today to see if you're instantly approved. That's L-A-D-D-E-R life.com slash gold to see if you're instantly approved. Also, you've got people like Jeremy Siegel pointing to the decline in commodity prices and saying, aha, this is a leading indicator. The Fed ignored rising commodity prices when it said inflation was transitory. But now that commodity prices are falling, the Fed is ignoring that and acting as if inflation is here to stay. So according to Jeremy Siegel, the Fed should take its cue from the weakness in the commodity market. And I think he is dead wrong there. I think what we see in commodity markets is a bear market sell-off correction in an otherwise bull market. And the reason that we got this correction in commodities 
was because of how aggressive the Fed was. All the rate hikes and quantitative tightening, all of that strengthened the U.S. dollar and that strong dollar weakened international economies, but also softened demand for commodities that are priced in dollars. And so the dollar strength led to that commodity weakness. But the minute the Fed caves, pivots, and acknowledges that it's not going to be as tight as the markets thought, now the dollar starts to fall and the commodities start to rise again. Think about that catch-22 for a minute. The only reason that we get relief in commodity prices is because of how aggressive the Fed is. Its aggressive stance causes a sharp rise in the dollar, which reduces commodity prices. Now, with lower commodity prices, people say, oh, look, the inflation threat is over. Commodity prices are falling. We don't have to worry anymore. And now because commodity prices are falling, the Fed doesn't have to be as vigilant. It can say, hey, we've won the battle against inflation. We don't have to be as tough as we said. And now because the Fed has telegraphed that future rate hikes will be less aggressive, the market is selling off the dollar. And because the dollar is going down, that is taking the pressure off of commodity prices, allowing those prices to rise. So in other words, the minute the Fed claims victory on inflation because commodity prices have fallen, the dollar tanks and now commodity prices hit new highs. And so now whatever progress the Fed has made has been lost. So they're in a situation where they're damned if they do and they're damned if they don't because if they ever indicate that they're winning the race against inflation because a strong dollar is reducing commodity prices, then the dollar falls, commodity prices hit new highs, and then inflation takes the lead and the Fed falls even further behind the curve. And I think what's going to happen before long is we're going to be hitting new highs in commodities as the dollar begins to sink and the recession gets worse. And again, as I've been saying, when we're in recession and we have inflation, both are there and the Fed has to choose because they can't fight them both because they require opposite policies according to the Keynesian playbook, which is the only one they've got. So if they have to make a choice, are we going to pursue policies to fight off this recession and rising unemployment, or are we going to ignore the recession and rising unemployment and fight inflation? It's clear politically the choice they're going to make. In fact, that's the choice they made in the UK. And I think that we faced a UK moment in the bond market on Friday. That's why the Fed let out that trial balloon through the Wall Street Journal of slowing down the pace of rate hikes. And so far, so good when it comes to the trial balloon, because we did get a floor, at least temporarily, in the bond market. And that took the pressure off of the stock market and allowed that relief rally that's been going on since Friday. But I think most significantly was the action in the foreign exchange markets, the big sell-off that we had in the dollar. In fact, last week was another outside reversal week for the dollar. This is the second time we've seen this in the U.S. dollar, where the dollar index took out the high from the previous week and then closed the week below the low from the previous week. So I think the U.S. dollar index has really carved out a pretty big top just under 115. As I'm recording this podcast now, Tuesday evening, the dollar index is trading just at 111. In fact, we were below 111 during the day, but we're well off the highs 
And I think that we've topped out. I've been talking about this potential top. and I thought it was interesting the last time I did my podcast when we had a big sell-off in the bond market that hurt the stock market. The dollar did not make a new high. Gold did not make a new low. And I looked at that as a significant divergence, not only because I thought it indicated that we had already seen the highs in the dollar and the lows in gold, but because I believe it meant the markets were now starting to price in the pivot. And now that we may have had the pivot, well, they're going to price it in even more aggressively. And one of the places that you're going to see it first is in the U.S. dollar. Now, still, I would like to see the dollar index below 105, which is still six handles beneath where we are now, before I can say 100% that the dollar has seen its highs. But I'm getting more and more convinced that that's what's happened. And again, for anybody who is waiting for an engraved invitation to sell dollars or buy gold, because there are some people out there that are saying that you have to wait for the actual pivot, not a pivot in rhetoric, but an actual pivot in policy where the Fed has to start cutting rates, where they have to go back to quantitative easing. That's going to happen eventually, but you don't want to wait for that. If you wait for that, you're going to pay much higher prices for gold. You're going to get much less for your dollars than if you just anticipate what is going to happen because the market will reward you if you anticipate and you anticipate right. Now, obviously, if you anticipate wrong, the markets will punish you, right? No guts, no glory. Well, I don't want to be a coward and just hold on to my dollars because I'm scared to buy gold now or I'm scared to sell them and buy into foreign assets. I am going to have the courage of my conviction and act now because in general, that's what markets do. They are forward-looking. They discount. The fact that the Fed is eventually going to cut rates and go back to QE, the markets are not going to wait for that to happen to start pricing it in. They're going to price it in in anticipation of that happening. And that process has already started. And so by the time we actually get the news based off of these rumors, then it's not going to be nearly as advantageous for the people who get in. Now, I don't think it will be too late. I think if you want to wait for the official first cut in interest rates or the return to quantitative easing, you can do that. I don't think it's going to be too late by any means. I mean, I think the price of gold is going much, much higher. That's not going to be the end of it. That's going to be the beginning of the next stage. But I don't think there's any reason to wait for that. I am confident enough that the Fed is going to pivot, that I don't have to wait for them to actually do it to know that that's what they're going to do. Again, I know what they're holding. I don't have to see their cards. I can read the bluff in their eyes and I am going to place my bets accordingly because I'm going to win this hand and I want to make sure I have a big pot. I want to maximize how much I'm going to win when ultimately the Fed is forced to fold and I get to collect that pot. If you remember, go back to 2019. Remember when the Federal Reserve first indicated that it was going to stop hiking rates because everybody thought the Fed was going to keep hiking rates in 2019. People were looking for maybe three more rate hikes. And I didn't think they were going to hike rates. In fact, I was saying that they were done in 2018, that the December hike was it, and that the next thing the Fed was going to do was cut rates. And the markets didn't believe that. And then the Fed stopped hiking rates. And then the Fed did exactly what I said it was going to do. It cut rates, but it didn't really admit to a change in policy. It pretended that it was going to continue hiking rates, but that before it continued with the rate hikes, 
It just needed to do this little mid-course correction. That's how the Fed initially described that rate cut. It's a mid-course correction, but we are still hiking rates. We're still tightening. We're just correcting a little before the next move higher. Of course, a lot of investors believe the Fed, but I didn't. I called out the Fed. I said this was not a mid-course correction. This was a U-turn. The course is now different. The Fed is going to keep on cutting, and that's exactly what it did. The Fed didn't resume the hikes. It actually accelerated the cuts and ended up at zero and going back to quantitative easing. So I think what the Fed just leaked through the Wall Street Journal in the face of this bloodbath in the bond market that, hey, we are going to reduce the pace of hikes, that really amounts to their mid-course correction. That's what they're doing. They're just correcting the rate at which they're raising rates. But what this really is is a prelude to a complete change in direction. The next thing you know, they're going to be cutting rates. They're going to be going back to QE. There may be some more rate hikes first, but the Fed is not going to hike rates as much as people thought. It's not going to raise them as fast as people thought. And so the dollar is going to be weakening. Gold is going to be rising. But also what's going to be happening at the same time is the economy is going to be getting weaker, but we're also going to see more upward pressure on inflation because of what's going to happen in the dollar. I see a lot of people in the Biden administration dismissing inflation. They're saying, hey, inflation shouldn't be an issue because inflation's a problem everywhere. They got inflation in Europe, right? Inflation is worse in Europe than it is here. And so why is anybody worried about it? Why are they blaming Biden administration, because it's a worldwide phenomena, as if that means there's nothing we could do about it. And so Americans should just forget about it because it's just something that's happening everywhere and it's got nothing to do with Biden policies. The fact that the entire world is suffering from inflation, this is not some kind of fluke. This is not some kind of mere coincidence. This is because all these major central banks created inflation at the same time. Quantitative easing didn't just happen in America. It happened in Europe. It happened in Japan. Artificially low interest rates weren't purely an American phenomenon. All the world's central banks had artificially low interest rates. So every central bank created inflation. They all sowed the winds of inflation. And now people all around the world are reaping the whirlwinds. But ironically, the main reason that interest rates were so low in Europe was because they were zero in the United States and because Europe wanted to stimulate their economy by having lower interest rates than we had in the United States because we're the reserve currency. And so for them to have a stimulative policy, they needed to get their interest rates lower than U.S. interest rates. Well, we were at zero. So the only way to go below zero was to go negative. As crazy as that was, that's exactly what they did. So the reality is, America is the primary reason that the entire world is suffering from such high inflation. But as a result of that, America actually ironically benefits and has lower inflation than everybody else. But that benefit has a short shelf life. In fact, what the Democrats are trying to claim is that the reason that inflation is lower in the U.S. than it is in Europe is because of their policies, that we have great pro-growth policies that what Biden has done to help the economy, we are now getting the benefits. And so we have less inflation because of these great Biden policies that he's implemented. And the reason that Europe has higher inflation because they don't have these great Biden policies. Now, of course, this is all spin. There are no great Biden policies. I mean, there are some policies, but they're terrible policies. And they're not the reason that we have lower inflation 
than they do in Europe. We don't have lower inflation because we're doing things right and the Europeans are doing things wrong, right? We don't have lower inflation because of anything that we've done right. We have lower inflation because all the things that the other countries have done wrong. So it's all on a relative basis. The dollar is only strengthening relative to other currencies. It is weakening in terms of purchasing power, but because other countries are also making mistakes, then they're having inflation. We're making similar mistakes. The fact is we're actually making the mistakes on a grander scale, but because we have the exorbitant privilege of issuing the world's reserve currency and a currency that everybody buys when they're worried about their own currency, we are benefiting from the mutual mistakes that everybody is making. And because the dollar is strengthening relative to the euro, that is helping keep our inflation low, but pushing European inflation higher. So it's purely a function of the dollar's reserve currency status and safe haven buying that is keeping our inflation low. It's got nothing to do with anything we've done right. It's got everything to do with other people are doing wrong. But since we're doing wrong too, eventually that's going to come back to bite us. And when it will is when the dollar starts to fall, which it already is doing. And the pace of that fall is going to accelerate as we get more economic data that is weaker than expected. And as more and more people begin to figure out that the Fed is pivoted and start pricing that in in a bigger way to the foreign exchange market, to the gold market. And once the pendulum swings in that direction, it is going to keep on swinging. And so the U.S. inflation rate is going to get higher as the U.S. economy gets weaker. And that is going to prompt even bigger deficit spending. We're going to get even more fiscal stimulus And of course, monetary policy is probably also going to adjust because there's no way you can have more fiscal stimulus without monetary stimulus to make it all possible. So then the Fed has to do a U-turn and go from quantitative tightening to quantitative easing. And that's when the dollar falls through the floor and then inflation goes through the roof. 